Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Greetings, we are back from our annual leave. Yes, even podcasts have annual leave. And uh, Dave, I have a stack one sent in by uh, uh, a listener, Nick Foreman. And that stack stack one runs as follows. Somewhere in Leicester or an American session musician. Okay? (laughs) A place in Leicester. A place in Leicestershire or an American session musician. There are eight examples. So... Uh, here they are, musician or Le- Lester Locale, Burton Lazars. <laughs> Burton Gotta be Lazars. Gotta be Lester. Gotta be Lester. Yep. Named in part after a 12th century leprosy hospital. Very good. Okay, Very Packy good. Axton. Now I know this, and then the answer to that American session musician um, and related to Hoyt Axton. And the, probably the child of May Axton, who is the axe in stacks. Very so good. That's, that's a very good answer. Yeah, he was. He played tennis sax on uh, Otis Redding's Pain in My Heart. There you Earl go. Earl Shilton. Sorry, missed that again? Do Earl again? Shilton. So Leicester, place in Leicestershire. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not to be confused yeah. with Peter Shilton, yeah. who played for Leicester. Traditional <laughs> shoe, shoe industry supplied boots for the Russian army. From Very Earl good. Shilton. John O'Gaunt. Oh, Leicestershire. Yeah, six miles down the road from the home of the pork pie Melton <laughs> Mowbray factory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Norbert Putnam. Oh, that's a session musician. Yeah, yeah. Muscle Nashville. Shelves. Mem- no, Nashville. Area code was 615. Very good. Phone, anyway, nope. go on, carry Neville on. Holt. Neville Holt. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say a place in Leicester. I'm going to say a place in Leicester. It is, yeah. At the 2011 census, the population has remained less than 100. Yeah. <laughs> Hiram Bullock. Hiram Bullock. It's got to be a session musician. Yep. Guitar player on Steely Dan's Gaucho. Oh, and man. Vernon Birch. 
Hannah Birch, that is a musician with yeah, spelled B B U R C H. You see, my problem. You see, you can't. That's fantastic. Listen, who 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 nominated this? This is going from Nick Foreman. Thanks very much for that, Nick. And we we really appreciate all this. I you the problem is with musicians. I am cursed with a retentive memory based on a, an adolescence and young adulthood completely wasted standing in record shops reading the sleeve. Reading a tiny print that tells you that I, Vernon so Birch was the vocalist. Yeah, exactly. Everybody. I remember everybody, you know. If you want somebody to, you know, name all the members of Candy, well, we can both do that. We can't can probably we, do know. that, actually. Larry the Mole Taylor, Henry the go. Sunflower. Yeah. <laughs> Al Fito Blind Eye Wilson. Yeah, Vito <laughs> Della Parra. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And the Blind Al. Yeah, that's it. Good. So, anyway, thanks for that. Very um, good, and Thank you, much. Keep them coming. Keep them coming. Yeah, definitely. So, Michael Parkinson. I know. One of those moments where, you know, a large percentage of the population just suddenly stopped for a moment, didn't they? And was sort of, uh, you and I had a conversation, we were, we were talking to each other, we just heard the news. And I said, I can, I can imagine now that if I turn on the TV in 20 minutes time, I will see Rod Hull and Emu. I will see <laughs> Billy Connolly <laughs> telling me the bicycle joke. <laughs> and, uh, and sure enough, it was all there, wasn't it? Can I just tell the bicycle joke before we go any further? Do it, yeah. Because I actually I'm doing went. The Scottish accent. I uh, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to attempt to do the Scottish accent at all. Um, I actually went and looked at it again last night. It comes from 1975. Yeah, it was one of his, one of his early appearances. And the thing about Billy Connolly was he'd he'd only he'd been known in Scotland really. He was a he was a Scottish phenomenon, not known in the rest of the UK. Well, I also known think. as about, um, you know as the humble bums kind of banjo humble player, bums and it? so forth. But Jerry he'd had these records. He'd had these records on transatlantic, but he wasn't really known nationally. But thanks to Parkinson, he started becoming known nationally. And and um, those were the days when you could just tell a joke, a simple joke. On Parkinson on Saturday night, and the entire nation, as one, we, would we'll be laugh. it the next day, and yeah. then would go and desperately try and find somebody yeah. the following day who hadn't watched, who it. hadn't heard. I think they could tell the story and pass it off as their own. I was listening to it and watching him tell it. And it's very simple gag, and I couldn't help thinking how unlikely it would be to get on the air in any shape or form. You couldn't possibly. You couldn't. Couldn't do it. It's the first thing I thought. Go on, tell it because it's very, it's so good. So basically, two Glaswegian guys in the pub. How's things going? He says, "How's the wife?" He says, oh, "I killed her." He says, "You did what?" He, he says, "You did." I, I got fed up. I, got, I killed her. He said, uh, "He said, yeah, I buried it in the backyard." He said, "You didn't." He said, "Oh, come on, come on, I'll, yeah, show, I'll show you." you. I'll show you. So they, get, they go back to the tenement, wherever where they live. And they go out the back. There is a freshly dug piece of earth, and the only thing alongside it is is a pair of buttocks sticking up from the uh, from the ground. And he said, what, what, "What's that all about?" He says, "I've got to have somewhere to park my bike." Even though you've heard it hundred times, it's still incredibly fun. It's so it's so you cannot imagine. That anyone could tell that joke now. Well, just, mean, here's the point. Here's the point, Mark. When that joke was told in 1975, not a single person in the world who listened on the in the world of Michael Parkinson, 
and late night television, who heard it thought it was in any way offensive. Not it was a bit, ri- bit risque. Well, he does Don't say, well, before he tells it, he says, it's a bit, it does, it's a bit of a liability to this, but I'll try it anyway. <laughs> it's fantastic. But nobody ever, nobody ever thought, oh, that's a bit, that's a bit misogynist. Or it simply wasn't part of people's calculations. They no. just thought of it as like a, it was like a Beano gag, wasn't it? You know, you, yeah, you could yeah, see yeah. the picture. It, it was Viz magazine before Viz magazine yes. was there, wasn't it's it? Absolutely, really? yeah, yeah. It's and, cartoon. Uh, Cartoons not it's real. It's cartoon. You know, it is, yeah, so yeah. God bless, uh, you know, Billy Connolly and Michael. Well, he Bonner. did get called. I watched the documentary, which must have been about five years ago, where he's interviewed by his son last night, and he does get called up you know and rightly for the for the famous um uh helen uh mirren interview do you remember that, that very, well vaguely go on remind me well he on. interviews helen mirren who is a kind of considered to be the major kind of sex bomb of the time well, she of, was. The, of, of the yeah of the of the kind of uh, particularly of the serious acting world and he said to her something along the lines of don't you feel that your equipment, as the word you oh, use, is, is, might, might hold you back from being taken seriously as a serious actor? And she gets and rightly really hot under the collar. And, uh, uh, and he, uh, he's, yeah. his son, who's interviewing, says, says, so how do you feel about that? No, he says, no, I, 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 it was a, a terrible mistake. And I was appallingly sexist. And I, I'm, I'm sort of apologising. You know. But then you but, have to. But, you know, they couldn't have made but, that. You now, do have to, but, but also, let's just, let's give the past a bit of slack here, okay? This man interviewed celebrities for how long? 40 Well, years? he claimed to have interviewed 2,000, over 2,000 celebrities, so that in itself is, a, is just a. So he did it, he did it for 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> During that time, a lot of things will change. Yeah. You, you know, some of them will be recognised as changing. Another things probably won't be recognised as changing at all, you know. And it's no point kind of bringing him before the bar of history and saying, on the 13th of March, 1976, you said, you said so, yes. so, so, so. This is a guy on a television programme. He's just, you know, he's... He's, his brain is racing, you know. He's uh, nobody's written down the question for him. Let's remember this, you know. This is not like nowadays where everybody is pre-interviewed to death. Oh, absolutely. And when they, and when they go on Graham Norton, they say, "Okay, he's going to tell five stories, and what you got to do is line them up." You got to line all them you up. To and you know. know what they are? They're rehearsed. Actually, it was interesting that the news coverage tended to have two or three examples of his big success stories, you know, Muhammad Ali or whatever. And then to, those two examples, the, the, the Helen Mirren thing, and also a clip with Meg Ryan, where Meg Ryan refuses oh, to the, talk to him. Yeah, 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 and, well, you know, which I thought, was a bit, I thought it was a bit unfair on him, really, because she was the one who's being difficult, you know. Yeah, absolutely. You have to, now you have to have this kind of balanced approach. You say, this guy was great, but he was also terrible. Just in case you thought he was terrible, don't worry, we've covered that off. So I tell you, the other thing that struck me about him, thinking think about him, because he's an extraordinary, u- uniquely powerful figure in British television for a long, long period of time. Nearest thing to a Johnny Carson, you know. Yeah. And in Britain, you, d- you didn't have loads of chat show hosts. Well, you did later, but, you know, not at that time. So he's very much the person who kind of defined the turf. And, you know, that he would get on anybody from a... Um, um, you know, extraordinary, venerable figure of, from the movies like Billy Wilder or David Niven Yeah, or Orson Welles, fantastic. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You think of these figures, they're almost figures from history. Yeah. And then he'd get, he'd get comics and he'd get Rod Hull and Emu and he'd get 
politicians plugging books and Jane Fonda and God knows what. And so, you know, he had to define what it was that made a successful chat show. And the thing that struck me watching them is it is it is you man he manufactured something in television that became a hugely important component of television that arguably didn't exist on television until he came, and that was charm. And yeah. so that was how you were a successful guest on a chat show. You were charming. Yes. You know, if you were David Niven, you were effortlessly charming because you were. And if you were a difficult guy, like, I don't know, Brian Clough, you showed your charming side yeah. on, on in front of Michael Parkinson because that's what he wanted you to do. He didn't want you to win a serious argument or anything like that. You didn't have to be absolutely hilarious. You just had to leave people thinking while they made a cup of tea. Afterwards, he seems nice. He seems nice. No, I tell you what struck me. I couldn't agree with that more. But tell you what struck me watching it last night was that before that, when did it start Parkinson's? 71. 71. 71. Well, before 71, I don't remember having the opportunity to ever get to know what what film stars or whatever, or what they were really like. You know, you see those interviews with, with James Stewart, you see Orson Welles, you know. That was amazing. What, you know, it's absolutely astonishing. You had, up till that point, you'd never had any access to those people at all. Well, David apart Frost, from their that's films. Right. David Frost had done a bit of that. Not but so much, though, yeah. Never never quite as much. Tended to do one did. person quite at length rather than just get people on. You just got a taste of what And also, like. Parkinson was a film buff, wasn't he? So it was, yeah. I mean, that was how I first remember him, you know, because I come from the north of England where, <laughs> you'd be surprised to learn. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the kind of magazine shows that were on British television in the north in the 60s, were produced out of Manchester, largely. Um, you know, they're out of Granada and so forth. So all those people like Mike Scott and Bill Grundy and Michael Parkinson were kind of known to us before they were known to a national audience. Oh, yeah, he was on local television, wasn't he? Yeah. And Michael Parkinson was, um, you know, he always wanted to nail his colours to the mast of movies, you know. He did a film, he did a film show, yeah. Well, he did cinema, didn't he? Or did he? Yeah, do, cinema. Yeah, cinema, yeah, cinema, cinema, cinema is called. And so I really remember clearly, so much of what I know about Hollywood movie stars is underpinned by what I learned from seeing them on Parkinson, seeing Billy Wilder Completely. and seeing P.T. Peter Ustinov and John Wayne and Peter Fred Ustinov, who's fantastic on it. Yeah. Peter Ustinov, never forgotten him talking about a film director. I can't even remember who the film director was. But he says, I like the idea of a man who aims low and misses. And misses, <laughs> yeah. And that yeah. made me laugh at ever since, you know. And of yeah. course, the other thing, other thing. There's a lovely bit of the clip last night, Peter Ustinov's just improvising uh, opera. Singing oh, just God, absolute yep. nonsense with Dudley Moore. It's phenomenal. Yeah, Actually, just yeah, going yeah. back to his Yorkshireness, uh, it reminds me so much of the things you told me about your dad. There's a brilliant bit in the programme where he talks about interviewing Muhammad Ali for the, I don't know, third or fourth time, when it goes really badly wrong. Do you remember that? And they really, initially they got on fabulously, but then Ali has the kind of, um, you know, religious conversion, becomes a slightly different bloke. And it's very, very aggressive. 
And it's a disastrous interview. And he goes back to his room. And his dad, who loved Ollie, had come all the way down from Yorkshire to London oh, to really? watch him record oh, this. And he comes to the dressing room and he thinks, what's he going to say? And his dad says to him, how do you think that went, son? He says, I think it went really terribly. He said, I do too. <laughs> he said, uh, "He said, well, what should I have done, Dad? Said, you should have thumped him. You know, and I thought that was really interesting because <laughs> the modern thumped. parent, the modern parent feels that if something goes wrong for their child, the first thing they do, child, I mean, they're, they're offspring, they, they go straight in and they go, don't worry, you were brilliant. It was all fine. It was his fault. You were fantastic. You'll bounce back. Get back in the saddle. Do you know what I mean? I thought it was just so, so kind of prosaic and <laughs> straight down the line. You it's really tell. funny. The last time I saw Mark and Parkinson, Parkinson must, it must have been some TV thing that he did not that long ago at Barnsley Cricket Club. And I saw this on YouTube. And, of course, Michael Parkinson was a very good you know, teenage cricketer, very good, in a part of the country where you had to be really good to get in the Barnsley yeah. Cricket Club team. So he kept the young Jeff Boycott out of the batting line of yeah. the Barnsley Cricket Club, which is amazing to think. And his other big mate was Dickie Bird, who, of course, yeah. became the great famous umpire. And there were the three of them gathered at, uh, at Barnsley Cricket Club, club for some kind of event, some TV thing. Or and I thought, this is just absolutely astonishing. These three genuine legends. Proper legends. Yeah, all yeah. in their 80s, you know, Back in that cricket club where they all started. And absolutely, um, well, you know, quite an innings, as you might say. Yeah. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So, Mark, as you know, I've been in France. Uh, an opportunity to visit France is always an opportunity to catch up with what's happening in the world of smoking. Because it is the world headquarters of smoking. And I, I actually found myself in a, having coffee in an outdoor cafe. And and after a while, saying to Alison, I'm going to have to move from here because I feel ill with passive smoking. And we're in the open air, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It, didn't, it didn't really ought to happen. Anyway, everybody's gone for the vaping. And therefore, they've got these huge pieces of metal equipment that they get out of their pockets or their bags or whatever. And it, it, this, this equipment is so huge. I keep looking around for the person further down the road who's holding up a theodolite or some large post. <laughs> because it looks as if they're about to survey the area, you know. This is, and so you think about a cigarette. A cigarette used to be a thin kind of phallic thing, didn't yeah. it? You know what I mean? That you kind of threw away when you were done with it. You know, people got huge amounts of mileage about how they manipulated it near their mouth and made it look yeah, sexy yeah, yeah. and so forth. Well, you can't do that with vaping equipment, you know, because effectively, and I'm addressing this particularly to the female vapors, yeah. what they've ended up doing, Mark, and I realized this in France while looking around at the number of people, number of fabulously elegant, very well turned out French women struggling with these huge, great metal devices. I thought, I said, Madam, you are smoking a pipe, for yeah. goodness sake. <laughs> yeah. If somebody had said to you 10 years ago, do you imagine you will you would abandon your cigarettes and start smoking a pipe? They would say, but, but no. <laughs> yeah. But that's what they're effectively doing, isn't it? It is. That's just my... It's, the same, my it's the same amount of equipment, isn't it? Same amount of preparation, same amount of ritual. Absolutely. And it's Pretty about as attractive. Together. It's actually slightly less attractive than a pipe. 
Anyway, so that's vaping. What were we going to talk about next? Well, we're going to talk, people have been sending in. Do you remember we started doing the stuff about those lost TV documentaries about oh, you know, absolutely. forgotten rock bands of the 70s? Someone sent in the one about Global Village Trucking Company, which is amazing. I've finished up watching pretty much all of it, actually. And it's really interesting. It was made the, uh, uh, in 1973. I think the BBC made a documentary about them. And this was remade again in about 2007 or eight after they had a reunion in, in, in Leightonstone. And it uses the old footage. It also has new footage and it tracks down members of the group. You know, so it's really, really interesting. But basically, it's, you know, those voiceovers, that that tone of the Chumley Warner voiceover that we're always talking about. You know, this one's classic. It goes something like, um, when five young men decide to form a pop group, they don't usually set up in a house in a remote cottage in the wilds of Norfolk and move in all their girlfriends. But then Global Village Trucking Company aren't an ordinary pop group. They're not worried about making money and they won't take the usual shortcuts to success. They want to do it without the moguls of the record business and the professional manipulators. Global Village want to do it their way. And their way, as you remember, I remember Global Village trucking companies. I remember seeing them in Oxford in 1975. And they were a kind of answer to the Grateful Dead. The whole point of yeah. them was that they lived communally and that's what this film is about it's fantastic it's talking about this. there they all are with all their girlfriends and their roadies and their managers and these babies and they're living in this derelict old cottage in the, in, the, in the countryside and the women of course classic division lady. the women do all the housework and all the cooking the men kind of try and stop the place falling apart at one point uh, it opens with a guy looking at a hole in the roof and he said i can see the sky through the roof if i mend it we won't be able to see the sky anymore. And they're like, get on with it. It's like, like Neil from the young ones. You know? <laughs> get on with it, for Christ's sake. You know? and, uh, and it just struck me that, you know, the whole thing is that their manager's there uh, and, and uh, he lives with them too and he's 18. He went on actually to be the CEO of Chrysalis Records, a guy called Jeremy Lascelles. And uh, they, uh, it, it just struck me that, that uh, you know, that where the Grateful Dead are different from them was the Grateful Dead used to rehearse all the time. Grateful Dead really, really, really took it seriously. They spent 10 hours a day working out the music and becoming absolutely phenomenal at it, rather than sitting around making great vats of vegetable curry and lying in hammocks. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And, and wearing woolly hats and talking about uh, the propaganda, the strategies of their lifetime, and whether or not they should have creature comforts. Talking about saying, um, yeah, you know, you get used to these creature comforts. We're just trying to live without them, like central heating. You know, and you think what kind of person can do that? Can afford to do that? The answer is really well-off people. Well, you suddenly realise that actually the great global village trucking company are all very well-off. And I can remember in 1975 going to see them and being told that the keyboard player, James Lascelles, or Lassells, and how you pronounce it, was the second cousin uh, of the Queen. His second cousin, his, his, his father was Lord Harewood, I think it was. Oh, absolutely. His, yeah, yeah, and he was therefore, yeah, it was the seventh Earl of Harewood, that's right, who was the Queen's cousin. So he was actually, so Prince Charles was his second cousin. This guy's actually in line to the throne. So this is a very, very posh group. And, and they can really they can really afford not to do it. and the other thing that struck me is really interesting which is a, a theme that goes through all these films we've been watching is that the general feeling about the music industry then was the music industry was just full of villains manipulators crooks do you know what I mean skullduggery thievery people who are there to rip you off which I'm sure to the logic that it probably was you know but that's the whole thing it's all about trying to avoid getting ripped off so we're going to do it our own way and then you meet all the people later on and uh, as I say uh you know, uh, Jeremy Lascelles was went on to be the CEO of Chrysalis Records, but none of the members of the group really do anything terribly distinguished. You know, 
But it's interesting. It's, very, it's interesting what, listening to it. all these TV commentaries all have the same kind of looking down their noses at the oh, yeah. tawdry, tawdry music business. And you feel like saying, what the bloody hell are you going about? You work in television, for yeah. goodness sake. If ever there was an industry, you know, dominated by reptiles, it's television, for goodness sake. Yeah, where do you, me very, where, very abruptly. Yeah, where exactly. do you get off? Exploitative, this, I know. This high ground on the music business, yeah. you know. I must but mention now, a couple of other ones that were sending at you very briefly. One was about a group called Affinity. Do you remember them? Affinity. Oh, God, they were kind of jazz. Oh, yeah, they, they were. Yeah. But, well yeah, done, right. yeah. Linda Hoyle was the singer. They Linda kind of Hoyle's Affinity. Band. They were on Vertigo, weren't they? Uh, I, I don't know, possibly. I don't, I don't know, actually. But there's a little clip of them going on the road with Annie Nightingale, who's really good, actually. Annie Nightingale asked really serious questions. And it's all about how tough it is. You know, there they are. Yeah. And the girl, Linda, says, look, I don't know how long I could do this. We, get, we make £15 a week. The roadies get 25 get £15. Yeah. And it's absolute hell. We have to drive 600 miles a day to play to nine people, you know. It's really hard. And the other one, which was sent in... Who sent in the Affinity one? It was sent in by... Um, uh, can't find it, can't find it. Now. Paul Harrison, that's right. And I also say that, yeah, and the, and, uh, the Gene Vincent one, which is sent in by Pete uh, Compton. Oh, and yeah. And Gene, yeah. that is amazing. And basically, it's 1969. Oh, is it? I thought it was later. Go on. All right. Yeah, 1969. And, and he's, oh, God, it's wretched. And he is touring Britain and playing in places like the Isle of Wight. You see him crossing on the ferry. And it could not be more dilapidated the whole thing yeah. you know he's surrounded by man promoters who won't play pay him and they say we'll have the money on monday and it or it's locked up in the room upstairs we can't open that now but we'll make sure you get it you know and uh he's i think he might have been in some way involved with don arden and oh, uh, the inland that. revenue and his ex-wife <laughs> and all these people are all combining to kind of make this tour stop or be utterly disastrous. And there are just sad moments of him sort of being interviewed by, by cheery journalists. Like, what are you about his favourite things? And he's sitting there in some destitute little B&B. Do you know what I mean? And Oh, it's heartbreaking. And then two years later, he was no longer, was he? I mean, I think he died in 71. So poor he old died in, He There's, died in 1971, and and you know one of the one of the the last people he met, who was on on. his way up, just as Gene Vincent was on his way down, was David Bowie. Because oh, really? when David David Bowie did his famous trip to the United States, oh, yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in February, uh, he he stayed in a house in Los Angeles, owned by a guy. Who was involved, Jim Vincent, and there was a little studio there. And I think the two of them met. I think I think Jim Vincent was actually supposed to record some very early David Bowie song or something like you know. But it's very strange how those things turn yeah. out. Shall I tell you a funny thing about David Bowie this week? Actually, um, I was watching um, Howard Stern, a clip of Howard Stern, who I like. Oh, yeah. Talking to Ian Hunter. Oh, I saw that too. Somebody tweeted it, didn't they? It, actually, it was Danny Baker. I've just Danny realized. Baker tweeted it. Was it was really good. Yeah. And and he's basically, he's got Ian Hunter as a guest on his show, and Ian Hunter, Hunter is about to play all the young dudes acoustically in the studio. And Howard Stern says, tell us about how you got to, got this song. And, of course, David Bowie wrote the song. And uh, and Ian Hunter says, well, we're about to break up, really, but uh, 
but David Bowie, the like David Bowie wanted us to do a couple of his songs. I think at first he offered Suffragette City or something. Yeah, he did. They didn't like it. I didn't like it. And so he ended up doing uh, all the own tunes. And Howard Stern says, how did you feel about this? How did you feel about such a, forgive me, he probably uses the adjective iconic. He may well do, yeah. (laughs) How did you feel about such a massive iconic figure as David Bowie giving you one of his... One of his greatest, greatest songs. And Ian Hunter says, well, I don't know, he was just a little bloke from Beckenham. Yeah. (laughs) And I thought, that is a brilliant line because the truth about pop music is they're all little blokes from Beckenham. They all start off as little blokes from Beckenham. Until? Trying to get some kind of deal, trying to make it work. And, and and we've lost sight of that yeah. recently. And so Howard Stern, who I do like, I think Howard Stern's a brilliant, brilliant broadcaster and so forth. But but he is a, he'll he'll have to just pass uh, as a kind of placeholder for all media, you know, outlets nowadays. They all act as if when they're talking about popular music, as if they're reading from a massive great book of rock that stands on a on a lectern and is inscribed in gold, where, you know, <laughs> it's very clear how the Bee Gees are or how David yeah. Bowie is or Bob Marley or whatever, you know. But that's that's just the critical we all view agreed, of them. We all yeah. agreed years ago, didn't we, that they are just just absolute cultural giants. Yeah. No, we didn't. No, you we didn't. weren't paying attention. No. It didn't work like that, you know, and it doesn't work like that. And uh, and I thought Ian Hunter really served to remind us there that that, that you know all of these people were once little blokes Absolutely. from Beckenham. Because why and, should and he it, accept this song? Because the assumption is you turned down a David Bowie song. Yeah, but he wasn't really David Bowie. You know, he was not then. You know, and also in the case of all the young dudes, who's the person who created all the young dudes? Ian, Ian Hunter. Hunter. Ian Hunter's, Ian Hunter's extraordinary yeah. delivery of that thing. What, you know. what it reminded me of, because I think, Danny, there was a thread after that where people had posted various songs that Bowie had written. It just reminded me that all those guys in those days were hustlers. They just thought, it's not going to last long. The Beatles constantly writing songs for other people. You know, um, Bob Dylan constantly trying to get other people to cover his songs. And Bowie was there. Bowie not only got Peter Noon, <laughs> you know, Peter Noon to cover one of his songs, but I think played piano on the top of the He played version. piano on the top of the, the song, I think, you know. I, he played, that's he played how on the- much he wanted that song to be a success. He wasn't being priggish and uh, standoffish about the critical, you know, status of Peter noon he just was a professional songwriter he probably thought this is all going to be over in two years time i've got to keep going absolutely and this leads me to i've been reading uh dj taylor's excellent new biography of george orwell oh, yeah. and and of course george orwell is you know is the only figure is who's got a statue dedicated to him outside broadcasting house hasn't he if he yes, has, he worked. He worked for worked for the BBC for years, but they don't have a recording of him, which is which yeah. makes me laugh all the time. Anyway, and uh, DJ Taylor's book about George Orwell is fantastic. It's really good. So George Orwell, as a, is of course Eric Blair. Eric Blair goes to Eton, 
then goes off to Burma to be a policeman in the in the Burmese police, does that for about 18 months, then comes back, decides he wants to be a writer, goes and lives with his parents in Southworld, of course, which is where you were only yeah, the other yeah, week. Yeah. And he mooches about Southworld, saying he wants to be a writer, you know, if anybody's interested. And uh, DJ Taylor has talked to a load of people who remember small children him being in town, you know, or their parents used to clean for the Blairs or whatever. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. He remembers the town. Ta- they re- give him an idea of what the town's view of George Orwell was. And um, and they all thought he was a bit of a weirdo who wouldn't join in anything. And why was he coming back here you know, living off his parents on their reduced circumstance? Why did he get a, get a proper job, you know? Yeah. And so... I just thought it was really interesting to be reminded of the fact that these, that even such a massive cultural figure as George Orwell, who is, if anything, a bigger giant than David Bowie, you know what I mean, was just another bloke sitting around in in Southwold, you know, go out and get down, go out and get usefully employed, you know, or cheer up for crying out loud and (laughs) join in the party or whatever, you know, and um, he, but he was just. you know, he, he was just trying to project his kind of otherness. And um, I, 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 just, I find it really interesting. Anyway, it's a terribly good book. DJ tell us. Uh, That's good. New biography of George Orwell. Yeah. Highly recommend. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. Well, it's always nice to know that uh, a friend of the pod is uh, shaking things up, um, stirring things up out there in media land at this sleepy time of the year. And uh, and the particular culprit this week is Paul Burke, who's been writing in this in that well-known pop magazine, The Spectator, <laughs> about about how about, about how punk rock was overrated in its impact. Give us the give us the headlines of this, Paul. Um, well, the first thing that started, I was going to plug on a couple of weeks before. I did a piece about um, skinheads being unfairly maligned 
over the years, which sometimes they deserve, and how they really brought reggae and Trojan records into our lives long before Bob Marley was popular. And it went down really well. Uh, they said, got anything else? And I thought, oh, I know what I've always thought. Punk was a bit overrated, wasn't it? And um, there's a reason for that. I mean, I I, I liked it uh, when it first started. The only punk band I really regard as a punk band are the Sex Pistols. Um, and once The Clash came along, I thought, oh, my God. But your, <laughs> your, your kind of premise is that, A, punk was a kind of passing fad and nowhere near as big a deal mm. as people thought it was, and, B, that actually it's kind of slightly overcooked legacy is due to a middle-class media. Is that right? Uh, I, I, I would, yeah, I, I, I'd stand by that. I think what happened was uh, people will often say that thing, oh, yeah, we, we, um, you know, we just threw away our Yes LPs and we cut our hair and we, we dumped prog <laughs> yeah. for punk. And you think, yeah, most of us weren't into either of those things. <laughs> we liked ABBA. I mean, very popular things like David Bowie, uh, Bob Marley, um, Hot Chocolate. You know, most of the population, I would contend, weren't that bothered. I, I think the Pistols made an impact because there was a, a frenzied media um, attention towards them. And, you know, Middle England was, oh, my God, you know, these terrible people. And, and they were nothing of the sort. I mean, I described in that piece as the Bay City Rollers with Attitude. They had a very shrewd manager and they were very, very well marketed. But I, when I was writing that, I, I listened back to some of the punk and the Pistols really do sound really good even now. But no, what happened was the but people, the majority of that stuff didn't get much radio play, did it? No, it's part of the reason. Yeah, no, a, a lot of it, and a lot of it wasn't very good. It's um, you know that thing that anyone can form a band, but the trouble is, a lot of people did. Yeah, it's, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and they go on about that DIY ethos. Well, I mean, I wasn't around, but wasn't that what Skiffle was, or even the Beatles, or, or the they just formed a band, didn't they? There was nothing unusual about doing that. Uh, I think the thing that was really unusual about punk is they led with the propaganda rather than the music. Yeah. And so it was highly developed propaganda. And so I've always thought of it as a religious movement rather than a musical one. As a, basically, it was a kind of, it was moral rearmament, if you like, punk rock was. Now let's take pop music and divide it into good people and bad people. And we are the good people. Yes, that's how it works. Because I stuck that on Facebook and a load of people loved it. And I wouldn't say uh, people go, oh, yeah, God, they're great. There that is. But the people who didn't like it were really quite, um, you know, it, it's like you'd offended their religion, as you say. This is it. Rightly said, yeah, or it their is. politics. And, and I got a, a quite an impassioned um, private email from a friend of mine, you know, not a great friend, but, you know, somebody I've known for years. He said, I'm, I, I, I can't believe it. I, you know, I always thought you were a good guy. And it is everything you say. I know, no, it's, uh, it's a political issue. I but know. don't you think a lot of it's to do with the fact that most punk bands were far more interesting to read about than yeah. they were to listen to? No, quite. In fact, in fact, you didn't understand their records. It's not like listening to the Eagles or Queen or something. You think, well, that's quite a nice record. I don't know anything about the group. Unless you read about it. That's why the the pop press did so well out of it. As you read about these groups in the pop press, they didn't really make any sense. Well, that's what Chuck Berry famously said about The Clash. They played in The Clash, and he said, what are they saying? But, um, they're clearly angry about something, but rule number one, if you're angry about something, make sure people know what it is. Enunciate yeah, yeah. with clarity, which, of course, Chuck, Chuck Berry always did that. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah he, 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 absolutely what he was saying. Um, no, and I think those people who... who, who um, jettisoned yes and genesis i mean it's a massive generalization but they did seem to become uh you know cultural commentators uh 
<laughs> doing BBC documentaries. And I'm forgetting because I'm getting so old now, despite my loud shirt, uh, just how long ago it was. I mean, it's 46 years ago. So the people making those documentaries, even if they're 46, won't remember a single bit of it. So they're relying on the footage. And there was a lot of footage from the 70s. Uh, about these well, we'll also misuse footage. The famous ca- case is the uh, is the film of the bin bags piling up in Leicester Square, yes. which is used in absolutely every last documentary about punk rock. It actually th- th- that film from two years later. Yes, of course it was because. <laughs> um, <laughs> I the just don't think well. it was that big a deal. And as you say, it led with it led with politics, and um, that's. And it still is. And I would argue when we talk about, you know, we people talk about it a lot, particularly in London, about gentrification. Gentrification started with the clash. You know, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it's when um, oh, this sounds like I don't like middle class, but I mean, I spent my life trying to be middle class. You know, I live in Muswell yeah. Hill, for heaven's sake. There you, but, there you go. Yeah, you know, exactly. Uh, so got nothing. Against, but that's the first time I think that. Um, Someone middle class thought, oh, I'll have some of that. Because he 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 was in the was it the 101ers and yes, was a pub yes. rock band and, and and he modeled himself on Woody Guthrie and he was a public school boy. He thought, oh, I'll have some of that. So he did that. And I think everything else followed, you know, whether it was a season ticket to Arsenal or a little two-bedroom house in Fulham. You know, you see, I think I think all popular music, doesn't matter what it is, over over a period of time, actually, if you scratch anybody. From Bob Dylan to the Bay City Rollers to the Sex Pistols to whoever came along last week, underneath it all, there are a bunch of chances mm. just trying to get famous. That's all they're bothered about, and they'll yeah. do whatever it is. And, and using There's gimmickry, most of them, actually. Absolutely. The Beatles being the best examples, the millions of gimmicks the Beatles had to get attention. I think the, be- the best one ever, and I admire him, but, oh, my God, obsessed with being famous, famous was David Bowie. Oh, yeah. my God. I, I think yes, if, if the Laughing Gnome had been a hit, he'd been happy for the rest of his life as an ITV game show host. But it wasn't. And so he kept, <laughs> you know, he kept borrowing, didn't he? He kept, um, oh, that's not working. I'll have a go. And then when the Mark Boland glam thing ran out, who's next? Lou Reed, uh, Mick and Keith. Um, he just went on and on and on. But he did it very, very well. And his record. That sounds, that yeah. sounds like a future column, Paul. I, I think you should. God, you I'm can... I mean, Bowie, especially since he died, he's practically God. You know, <laughs> I really will be chased down the streets if I do that. Nobody will be to... talking to you at the barbecues of Muswell Hill in the future no, if you no. go on slaughtering these sacred cows. But keep doing it for us, Paul. No, it's because... irresistible. <laughs> it's, it, it's valuable entertainment. We very much appreciate it. The only thing Mark really pointed out was was the headline it should have had. It was an open goal. Oh, can I say, to, did, let me stop. Was it Never Mind no. the Bollocks? No, no, no. 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 The headline never, never Mind the Bollocks, the truth about punk is what no, I... No, the great smash hits uh, uh, mantra and uh, taken up all, uh, elsewhere too was like punk never happened. There you but, go. Yeah, yeah. But David, oh, I'm, sure you, I'm sure you wrote a column along those lines or your blog or something. I couldn't find Oh, I probably did. I yeah, probably did. Never yeah, for most people, it sort of didn't. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. well, that, that applies to, yeah, certainly the, you know, the biggest thing of that period of time, as you point out in your column, the really great records of 1976 that changed the world genuinely was Donna Summer's I Feel Love. 
Yeah. It sounds as fresh as a day. It was fantastic. And disco, exactly. I thought there was that, something but, wrong with me when I first heard that because I thought, do you know, it's a weird thing. I thought, I'm not supposed to like this. I'm a geezer. You know, I like <laughs> I like punk or I like – and I just loved it. It just mm, – and I still do. And I, I decided I would be a disco diva from that moment. But on. it's interesting how little you hear – you know, the, the the Clash or the Pistols or the Damned or the Banshees mm. or whoever, you know, on, on radio now. It's kind of disappeared. It just didn't quite stand not up. Not really radio-friendly. Um, no. It's not radio-friendly, certainly. No, not Whereas I Feel Love could have been made last week. Yeah, because yeah. millions of records have been made in the footsteps of I, of I Feel Love, you know. A wonderful. Um, right in the middle of well, uh, thanks very much for, uh, for joining us. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. Well, every Friday night, uh, as various people know, we do a quiz. Very well attended, uh, live, all over the world, international following. Very good fun. And we've started doing, uh, We used to. the answer used to just be an act, a musician or a band or whatever. And we've started to develop that in the direction of albums. And we did one uh, this week about Bridge Over Troubled Water. And it just struck us both listening to it. What an absolutely astonishing record that is. And how again? Yeah, and I can remember so vividly when it came out. You remember one of those records where it was everywhere. It was in shops. It was everybody's home. You went to was playing it. It was on the radio. It was just absolutely everywhere. I can actually literally remember hearing it for the first time. I could take you to where I stood when I heard it yeah, for the yeah. first time. It's not that far from where I live now. It's in a record shop in North London. It was Saturday morning. I was a student. Yeah. And I just heard this playing, and I think I heard Bye Bye Love. I thought, what's that? And I went and looked at the counter. My goodness, there's a new Simon and Garfunkel record. And I I took my student grant, which I think it was 40 pounds a term, and spent whatever, what, and whatever. blew about a quarter of it. <laughs> well, it was pre-decimal, so it would be 32 and 6 probably or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, spent that that money on it because I'd previously bought bookends, which came out at sixty seven, I think, and then I hadn't bought the one in between, which is of course the soundtrack for the graduate. Uh, the graduate was was what had made them go absolutely massive. But uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water was the biggest selling album in the world for about four years. It was for, for, for till nineteen seventy two or something. It was absolutely, absolutely astonishing. And the thing that struck me about it, listen, I listened to it again when we were compiling that quiz, and, and just for just for fun, it's it's such kind of unlikely multi-platinum album in that it's not kind of calculated at all. I mean, it starts with a really slow gospel ballad. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which takes ages to get to the point, doesn't it? Bridge over yeah. troubled water, long piano intro. All that kind of thing, you know. And it has, and then it has a piece of world music, doesn't it? El Conda Paso. El Conda Paso. Which was the kind of sound. The variety American. of it is incredible, isn't it? Because that's the uh, other thing is that most records would tended to be plowing a particular groove, didn't they? Well, bye bye. Not that one. It had the not, box, it had Cecilia, and there were El Conda Paso, they were so different. And I, and, I can remember hearing. El Condor Paso, and having never heard music like that in my life. You know, this was 1970. I'd never heard music from the Andes. You know, you take all these things for granted now. Seemed absolutely no, absolutely. It has two songs on it, 
that were about his relationship with Art Garfunkel, which was never easy, was it? Because you had this duo where really Paul could do most of the work, but people still wanted the duo and they wanted the choir boy soloing of of Art Garfunkel. But there was always that great tension, wasn't there? Paul probably thinking I can do without him, and uh, and Art Garfunkel thinking you can do without me. I'm going to go off and be in well in Catch Twenty Two. Catch Twenty Two. He? he went off and started no. recording. In fact, Paul had to move to. He was living in Blue Jay Way, wasn't he? Paul had to go and live and rent a place nearby in order to be able to carry on working on the record and see him. What's the opening line so, yeah. to uh, he d- Tom? He does playing right on time. So uh, Tom, Tom is Art Garfunkel, who was the Tom, Tom and Jerry, which was the group, that they, the duo that they were when they were kind of high school kids. You, Tom, get your plane right on time. I know your part will go fine. fine. Fly down you know, to Mexico. Fly yeah. down to Mexico, which is where it was going. And, and Mike Nichols was directing it, wasn't he? Mike Nichols yeah. was directed The Graduate. But the other one that is also um, so long Frank Lloyd Wright. Yeah is actually about Art Garfunkel. And Art Garfunkel used to, used to sing it not knowing it was about him. Yeah. Didn't know until about three years later when Paul Simon mentioned it in, uh, in an interview. You know, all of the nights we'd harmonise till dawn, you know. Um, yeah. I've, well, uh, architects may come and architects may go and never change your point of view. When I run dry, I stop a while and think of you. It's it's a classic male thing, you know. But they couldn't they couldn't say how much couldn't they tell him. Each other. Couldn't tell him. Yeah. I know. So so really got to write thinking, these love letters, love messages in songs. You can't possibly yeah. say to somebody to their face. I know. But it's the idea that Art Garfunkel didn't know until a few years later that it was about him. But it's, it's extraordinary. And things like Cecilia, where you were talking about this, weren't you, the other day, that uh, recorded at a party or something? Well, it was recorded at a party. They, uh, yeah, they were at a party and they just ran a little reel-to-reel tape and got a rhythm going. And I think Paul Simon's brother was involved in this and they were just playing guitars and bongos and things. And then they took it back to the producer and they made a loop, amazing at the time, made a, a, a loop of this thing, a minute long, and then took it to the studio and just built up and built up and built up until he got an idea for a guitar part, an idea for a melody, but completely different when there's bits where they drop bits of percussion on the floor and the record all the sounds. So, I mean, the sound of that record was so incredible, wasn't it? The sound of the, the boxer, my the God. The drumming, the drumming particularly, interestingly, the, the boxer... Um, the, and there's another track I was listening to. I was thinking the drumming is remarkable. There, it's Hal Blaine who plays the drums. Yeah, part. yeah. And so the it's the same group. drummer who played on the Ronettes' "Be My Baby." Yeah, and a million and one, a million and one other records. But that kind of crashing, distant snare sound on the box set. Yeah, comes from the fact that they 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 took him outside and put him in the stairwell of the, the stairwell. CBS studios and wherever they were, Fifty Second Street, New York, yeah. and um, you know because they wanted this big echoey sound. You know, it's like uh, John Bonham did uh, later with uh, Led Zeppelin, Hedley Grange, and so forth. They put him at the bottom of a stairwell, stairwell to, get, to get that extraordinary yeah, sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it is amazing, and, uh, and of course, it still goes on giving. You know, the baby driver, 
becomes, you know, inspires a yeah. That was the movie. Does it? That was what's playing in the credits of the Edgar Wright film. That's the name of the film. You know, I I still can't get over how fantastic it is. I mean, I was well over sixteen when it came out. I remember hearing the opening lyric to the Boxer. I'm just a poor boy that my story is seldom told. I've squandered my resistance for a pocket full of mumbles, such promises. All lies and jest till a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. That's a fantastic lyric. The scanning, the oh, scansion yeah. of that. It sings Chiseled. itself. <laughs> Absolutely. It does. Say it, it does. again. Say it again. It says, I'm it, just a poor boy, though my story is seldom told. Seldom told. I have squandered, squandered my resistance. Squandered my resistance. That's, That's incredible. It. Squandered my resistance for a pocket full of, mumbles. Full of mumbles. Such are promises. Such are promises. Just all lies, all lies, all lies and jest. All lies, all lies and jest is Shakespearean. That is. Yeah, it is. It feels Shakespearean. Yeah, till a man as, as here, does pocket full of mumbles, actually. Such are till promises. Till a man... Till a man, man hears, hears what, he wants, what hear, he wants to hear and, and disregards, disregards the rest. There's not a wasted yeah. syllable in that whole thing. Yeah, it's absolutely astonishing. I was, uh, I was watching an interview with him when he was talking about, you know, just his early career recently, and um, you know, talk about when he was in England, so sixty-five. That sixty-five is in England. He's living in Brentwood, Essex, yeah. with his girlfriend, and he's working the folk clubs, and he's doing very well. He's making twenty-five pounds a night, which was proper money in nineteen sixty-five. And then he gets a call from Garfunkel, or I think you get a letter saying they've they put out "Sound of Silence" again with um, with the backing with the rhythm section, yeah, and uh, and this time it looks as if it might. Actually, get the chance. Yeah. So he he hops on a plane and goes back. Which is people say and kind of invented folk rock, don't they? Yeah. That sound was not the sound that. But, they, but, but the interesting thing about Paul Simon, two things actually, is even at that age, he'd had a real professional experience in the music business because he'd worked for publishers. He'd been the guy who'd gone out and played songs that the publisher wished, not necessarily songs he wrote but songs that the publisher wished to get covered by record companies, he would go in there and just play them. Consequently, he learned very early on about how you sell a song. <laughs> you know, he could do it with somebody else's yeah. songs and he could do it with his own as well. You know, so he, he kind of understood, he understood pop shape really well. The other thing that struck me about the two of them is I think they were the first people to come to pop music having had real choices, you know, because they'd both gone to university, hadn't they? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and you know, Paul Simon had just said, you know, oh, I'm going to take some time off. He was doing law, wasn't he, at Columbia, I think. And I don't know what Art Garfunkel was doing, but I think he was away as well. And so, you know, they had a kind of quite nice middle-class life mapped out for them. And then this was the kind of flaky alternative yeah. that they might be tempted to have a go. What if parents breathing down their necks saying, what Absolutely. are you doing? Go back Absolutely. to what you're guaranteed to be able to make a career out of. Absolutely. And that was that was why So Long Frank, Frank Lord Wright is so called, because Garfunkel was talking about going and being an architect. And actually later on, not long afterwards, still when the checks from Bridge of Trouble Water are still jamming the mailbox on a regular basis. Our Garfunkel goes off 
to teach mathematics in the yes. school, doesn't it? Did. It's just absolutely His entire career has been full of things like that. Isn't it? Going off and just walking across America. And doing Walks stuff. across. Well, he, he could afford to. He's probably walk across China as well. I know, I know. In fact, oh, look, there he goes. Yeah. <laughs> you can see the top of his head. <laughs> we should mention. We should mention. No, that's Rock. a good ending for oh, that. End there. That's oh, okay, a good we'll end there. There oh, he okay. goes. Great. You can. I was going to say we could mention Robbie Robertson, but we don't have to. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I was taking advantage of the opportunity for an ending of a bit. No, that's good. You talk about Robbie Robertson all you want. Just, just um, do a little bit of Robbie Robertson. Why not? I, I, I had a thought about it. I, no, no, sure. Yeah. No, we're all in. Okay. Okay. One final, one final thought. Because um, this happened actually during our during our holiday period, actually. So sadly, we couldn't uh, broadcast about it early. But um, but the passing of Robbie Robertson. One thing that struck me was, you know, there's someone whose whose songwriting skills were so based on this idea of being fascinated by other characters and by storytelling. And I was just reminded of how extraordinary his life was. His mum was part of the uh, Kayuga, Yuga and Mohawk tribe, wasn't she? Easy and for you to say. It's easy for me to say. And he was and spent quite a lot of his time on their reservation near Toronto, didn't he? His dad, he didn't discover who his dad was till I think he was about 14. He thought it was the person who brought him up. Discovered his dad was a professional gambler who was killed in a in a in a hit and run accident. Um by the age of 14, he was sort of almost a professional musician. You know, he was, he was working in a, in a, well, he joined, he joined a carnival, hadn't he? A traveling carnival. He'd been an assistant on a freak show. Um, he was, he was, uh, he was playing all the local teen dances when he was 14. You kind of talk about people like George Harrison being really young. He was 17 when he was in Hamburg. But I mean, Robbie Robinson was touring with the Hawks when he was 15. He, they had yeah. records out co-written by him. It's absolutely astonishing. And the thing that struck me was that Dylan, who's actually, whatever, two years older than him, must have been really slightly in awe of him because Dylan had, it was from a quite a comfortable middle-class background, wasn't he? His dad yeah. ran a furniture and appliances shop in Hibbing. And, you know, he, he, you know, he was highly educated and, uh, you know, and Dylan had invented this story, yes. uh, a press story about being a, the kind of guy who worked on, Oh, the and yeah, he worked on a carnival, didn't he? And he, you know, rode boxcars and he kind of hitchhiked. Yeah. And then he meets Robbie Ross, who's two years younger than him, who'd actually done all these things, who genuinely done them and lived this absolutely extraordinary life. And I think he must have been, well, I think he must have been slightly in awe of him, really. And Yeah, uh, uh, well, I suppose the same thing could be said about, well, we talk about Bob Newworth who was yeah. Dylan, Dylan's big mate, wasn't he? And yeah. And kind of assistant. Well, Bob Newworth had done the things that Bob Dylan just sang about, wasn't he? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it must have been many occasions when Bob Dylan wrote songs based on the experience of Bob Newworth, because Bob Newworth's experience would be a lot richer on yeah. account of him not being Bob Dylan. You know, you can go off and do things, can't you, if you're not Bob Dylan. Whereas as soon as you're as well-known as Bob Dylan, your experience becomes quite Restricted. doesn't it? It, it does. So my thought about Robbie Robertson is, is, the, the, you know, the band, the, the story of the recording career of the band, which is obviously what Robbie Robertson's, 
you know, reputation is all about, all comes down to, is it the greatest example of the truth that in popular music a miss is as good as a mile that you'll find anywhere in popular music? Because the first band album is marvellous. The second band album is better than that. The third band album is not quite as good as that. The fourth is terrible. And so it goes on. And it wasn't for want of trying. You know what I mean? Something happened with that second band album. You know, because it's a really odd thing, isn't it? That Robbie Robertson was the kind of leader, but he didn't sing really. You know, the singers with three other guys. So he was kind of throwing his voice through these three other people, wasn't he? And and he, he wrote about America and he wasn't American. Yeah. You know, which is, it's, you know, it's like, it's like finding out that Richard Thompson, who wrote Legion Leaf, came from Germany or something. You know, it's yes. just, that's an extraordinary idea. And then later on, when you come to Cahoots and, you know, the fourth album, he's just desperately trying to still do the same thing, the river hymn and things like that. And it just doesn't work. He just kind of lies there, you know? And yeah, there's just the it's true. Magic. It was a steady decline, really, wasn't it? Because oh, you think really actually I've forgotten that they were quite they were pretty big when the first record came out because because the weight was used in easy riding. The weight and that, yeah. Absolutely. And that was just enormous, wasn't it? And so they were on that kind of plateau and it just kind of slightly kind of tailed off. But well, it, still- it, it, it is they are also a unique case of you know, my experience of, you know, hip taste, which we often deride, unless we agree with it, <laughs> at the time <laughs> of the band's first and second album, suddenly it, it, hip taste was just completely overtaken by the band, wasn't it? Everybody just wanted to talk about the band. George Harrison went off to America oh, yeah. to try and clap and say, I'm going to split the group. That's yeah, right. Yeah. I want to be the band. Legion Leaf, you know. And normally when people are like that, when when people affect things in that way, it's because they're really kind of outlandish or they go further. Whereas the thing about the band was they didn't go further, they went less far, actually. Yes. You know, the characteristic of the band was their extraordinary restraint. It was almost spooky, their restraint. There's Which nothing you could flashy about it. look too. In everything. Yeah, there's yeah. no mad guitar solos. We, no, you know, no, not there's at no, all. Nothing obvious here at all. No, it, yeah, that no. weird thing that you were not sure who the leader of the group was, which no. was the idea. They wanted it yeah. to be, in fact, he was only the leader, Robbie, because nobody else wanted to take the job, and also because he finished up writing most of the songs. But, I mean, it was a, a, a democracy, wasn't it? And all that was different. And also, I still think it's extraordinary that, you know, at the time of, you know, Pink Floyd and... Um, yeah. You know, uh, Jimi Hendrix and, uh, you know, traffic and, uh, you know, all that, you know, Disraeli gifts, their satanic majesties. They were going back into this kind of Huckleberry Finn, F. Scott mm-hmm. Fitzgerald, Deep American South, jazz, ragtime, American roots. They are writing, you know, writing songs about the American Civil War. It's fantastic, really, you think about it. Just, it, it's, there was nothing remotely like that. And I, I can't help but, feel that that they 
They are the they're the kind of DNA in the way that people like Iggy Pop are to punk rock music. They are the kind of DNA to the whole concept of Americana. You know, the idea of all American roots music. Don't you think? Yeah, well, sound. I, I, I think like REM. I think, the I think well, I'm not sure about REM, but I think REM is slightly different. But certainly, I agree that there are a million and one bands who, when they play, they close their eyes and try to persuade themselves that they sound a bit like the band, yeah. and they don't. They just don't. Nobody had that fingerprint. Doesn't Nick Lowe tell that story about when the band came over to play the Isle of Wight Festival? That's right. They rehearsed at the place where his band were living. Brinsley Schwartz were there. Yeah. And so they were asked if they'd mind the band using their equipment for, um, for uh, you know, a rehearsal or whatever. And they were thrilled to bits. <laughs> How excited. And so they all went and stood outside the barn or whatever, wherever it was. And, and the band went in there and picked up Brinsley Schwartz's various bits of equipment, which Brinsley Schwartz always thought were, were a kind of not very good and inadequate to the task. And suddenly, magically, they sounded like, sounded the, like band. the band. That's right. <laughs> The, the very same stuff. I love Such that. a distinctive sound. I can remember John lo- Savage once saying to me in the Mojo office, you listen to the band, said, and you can hear the beards. <laughs> it was a lovely idea. But also they got that thing that people said about Little Feet, that nobody is actually playing what you're hearing. Because what you're hearing is the interaction between the instruments. Mm. You know, you're entering a completely different space there. And I still, every time, you know, if you've got a copy of the band's second album, go and play it and go and look at the picture, I think it's on the back, of the band. And Levon Helm is playing what appears to be a child drum kit. Yeah, tiny. It's smaller. It's tiny. And that is the drum that is the drum kit that he actually played on that record because he went and bought it in a charity shop. Yeah. And then went off because they were in Los Angeles, you know, Sammy Davis's pool house, famously. Yeah. You know, they weren't in Woodstock. No, they, they weren't. weren't in no, made in, they're, they're about as far as possible from that kind of milieu. Yeah. They're in Sammy Davis's pool house and he, he created the most desperately imitated drum sound ever from a child's drink that While he's singing. bought in a charity shop. So to borrow, to borrow, you know, a cliche from the now disgraced Lance Armstrong, it's not about the bike. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 